Hello and welcome to Tell Me Where I'm Going. I'm Chris DeLuca, your host. When I say host, I, I really mean author. That's really what I am. I'm a host out of necessity. I'm an author out of need. Oof. Anyway, the premise of this show, for those of you who don't know, uh, is, is that uh, we have an interactive podcast here. I write a chapter of my riveting ongoing narrative, uh, which follows the traveling Wilburys back in 1988 on an imagined tour solving crime. And I write one of those chapters, and I record it along with my wife, and I put it out, and inevitably I get stumped towards the end of that, and I reach out to you, my devoted audience, to help tell me where I'm going to go next, and you get to shape the narrative. And uh, just to remind everyone where we are in the story, this is uh, we're going to be hearing chapter five. So, if if you haven't heard the previous chapters, get ready to get confused. But uh, all those all those episodes are free. You can just go back and listen to them. No no harm no foul. Um, but to catch everyone up from about the story right here, um, you know our heroes, the traveling Wilburys, had been chasing a deranged clown who uh, they believe had hurt or kidnapped or murdered or something. They're uh, one of their groupies. Um, and they followed this clown uh, below their stadium that they were playing at earlier that night uh, into a subterranean fairground, which used to be you know, not sunken. It's like the Meadowlands. It just sinks. And uh, they chased the clown around. They had some adventures. You can listen all about it, read all about it. Um, but where we left them previous is the the traveling Wilburys had found themselves deep, even deeper underground after a, a cave-in uh, in this kind of weird ritual, in the middle of some crazy cult ceremony. And uh, there was a, a woman uh, strapped to an altar in front of all these robed cultists, uh, along with their uh, their old pal, Eddie Money, who, uh, who was wearing a robe as well. We'll learn about that. Um, but then we also, this was like the cliffhanger, this is what I needed help with, we we also followed the uh, the other groupies who whose friend had gone missing, and they're also looking for their friend. And if you uh, if you remember, they had gotten separated from the traveling Wilburys, and they were none too happy. They blamed the Wilburys. Uh, they think they kind of pieced out, uh, you know, being being like rich jerks. You know, they were kinda avoiding their responsibility to help. Um, and another detail that's important to remember is that while the traveling Wilburys were, you know, before they got involved with the with the cultists, um, Jeff Lynn and Bob Dylan were running around a mirror maze. This is in the sunken fairground. And they, you know, came across their doubles, people dressed up exactly like them. They thought it was in a reflection. It wasn't. It was their doubles. Uh, and uh, they were dressed in country attire. Um, and so the boys 
naturally mistook them for themselves in their own country faces. But it wasn't. It was it was actual, actual imposters. And um, and where we left off with the groupies, we actually found out that the imposter Jeff Lynn and the imposter Bob Dylan were helping up the the groupies after their fall into into this place. And I say this place specifically because that that was what I didn't know. I didn't know where they were. You know, I knew that they were with these imposters and I knew they had kind of fallen into this new kind of unknown place, but I didn't know what that unknown place was. It was unknown. Uh, and that's what I reached out to you to help me with and and we had a real humdinger of a of a round where I won't get into the details, but three suggestions had a a three-way tie. Phenomenal. You can hear all about the details in the in the previous author update if you're unfamiliar. But uh, just to remind you of what those suggestions were, the first was that they landed in a natural cave with prehistoric art on the walls. The second was that they landed in Martin Scorsese's basement. And finally, uh, the third suggestion was that they landed in the ghost of Studio 54. Now, all amazing, all insane suggestions, but now I had to work with all three, and I had to combine all of them, because they all won, they all were equal, so, I mean, it means I have to honor, they all have to be true, and I have to deeply integrate them into the narrative. And that was my challenge this week. This was... This was the gauntlet thrown down for me. Gauntlet laid. Gauntlet accepted. Now you're going to hear the fruit of that. I'm pretty excited. So, sit back and relax. Or tense up. I'm not your mom. And please, enjoy. Connie, Yuna, and Belinda crawled from wreckage, helping each other stand. The collapse of the sunken fairground had caused considerable damage to the stadium, and whole swaths had been swallowed by the earth. The trio of groupies had been unlucky enough to have been in one of those areas, and had fallen through to an unfamiliar place. As they collected themselves, they heard a voice behind them. Hey, yo, ladies, can I lend a hand? Turning, they saw Jeff Lynn and Bob Dylan, hands outstretched, both in their country phase. Taking their hands and taking in their surroundings, they stared in wonder. They were in a natural cave, the rubble they had fallen with blocking their exit above. The cave wound in a curved line, twisting ever downward, long cylindrical, calcified protrusions jutting from the walls like bones giving the impression that they had found their way inside some impossibly large snake. The darkness of these depths would have been complete, save for the slice of faintly stuttering light coming from the imposter Jeff Lynn's flashlight. Both he and the imposter Bob Dylan were grinning widely, wiping rock dust off their hands on their wrangler jeans and doffing their cowboy hats as they helped the girls up. I hope y'all aren't too banged up there. You ladies took quite a spill. 
said the impostor Bob Dylan, knocking clods of earth from his spurs. Connie was the first to recover. She took him by the shoulders, pulled him forward, and kneed him in the crotch. The impostor Bob Dylan cried in pain, doubling over. The cave went almost completely dark. The impostor Jeff Lynn had used his flashlight to help cover his groin. What in tarnation was that for, you crazy marmoset? We just helped you out. You abandoned us outside the Zamboni locker. You promised to help track down that creepy green-haired clown and find our friend Dixie, not her real name. And instead you used your rich rock star connections to vanish. Wires. The imposter Bob Dylan was in too much pain to do anything more than whimper, but the cowering imposter Jeff Lynn piped up for the both of them, fear overcoming his imposter senses. Lady, I have no idea what you're talking about. The end of his sentence curdled into a yelp as Connie hit him upside the head with her handbag. Don't play dumb with me, whoever you were again. You seriously don't remember my name? Lady, I'm... The imposter Jeff Lynn had to think for a moment. James Lynn! Connie brandished her handbag. I don't care what your name is. You both have a lot of explaining to do. Let's start with when you disappeared outside the Zamboni locker. Make it snappy! By this point, the imposter Bob Dylan had recovered enough to speak, which he desperately wanted to do instead of his partner, who couldn't even remember his own assumed identity's name. Luckily, nobody else seemed to either. We didn't mean to leave, honest, he rasped out. We were kidnapped. Connie arched an accusing eyebrow, unseen in the dark, but deeply felt. Kidnapped? You guys vanished instantly. How come we never saw anyone else? Well, that's because, started the imposter Bob Dylan, desperately trying to spin the convincing lie. Before he could, the imposter Jeff Lynn jumped in with an unconvincing one. That's because we were kidnapped by ninjas, he said confidently. Connie was too taken aback to be mad for a moment. Ninjas? She asked incredulously. That's right, ninjas, said the imposter Bob Dylan through gritted teeth kicking his partner in the dark. There's a secret cabal of ninjas with a hideout deep below the stadium, and they'll do anything for power. So kidnapping rock gods gets them closer to that. The imposter Jeff Lynn scratched his fake beard. Huh, well, those ninjas are a lot like us. Only they know karate. Ouch! He had been kicked again. Yeah. They are a lot like us, said the imposter Bob Dylan, fuming, in that we are both extremely passionate about what we do, which in their case is martial arts, and in our case is music. He practically yelled the last word in the imposter Jeff Lynn's face, who scoffed. Oh yeah, I know music. I'm super famous for music. The imposter Jeff Lynn lied with real arrogance. Everyone knows my big hit. Come around, uh, around, and over. Yeah, that's right. Come around, around, and over by James Lynn, he said proudly, retreating out of kicking distance. Blithely unaware, he plunged on with his story. Now, we were kidnapped. But then we escaped into the sunken fairgrounds. We tried to pass ourselves off as 
ourselves to infiltrate our own band. He winked at the impostor Bob Dylan, who winced. But then we ran into ourselves in the mirror maze, and things got out of control. And then everything collapsed, and then we ended up here, randomly, uh, for no reason. Bob, you silly goose, I don't need your boots. You don't have to throw them at me. The shock of the preposterous story had worn off, and Connie was now properly mad. What a crock! That's your story? You honestly expect us to believe that nonsense? Give me a flashlight. She snatched the light from the imposter Jeff Lynn's protesting grasp. You're both dirty rats. But right now, all I want to know is whether you saw Dixie! Or that clown! The flashlight beam shone in the two fake musicians' faces, forcing them to squint. Both of them shook their heads in the negative, relieved to not have to think up a new story. Typical, Connie said coldly, and the two men were subjected to another clocking from her handbag. Connie glowered at the two cowering frauds. You really seem to know your way around here. What with all your ninja adventures. Why don't you lead the way? I'm not letting either of you out of my sight. Ma'am, please. We can't do that said the impostor Bob Dylan. We don't know where we are, neither. You seem to find us well enough, Connie replied curtly. Uh, yeah, but that's because we followed you, said the impostor Jeff Lynn. The impostor Bob Dylan bleated an involuntary moan of frustration and defeat. The impostor Jeff Lynn heard it and tried to correct course. Uh, what I mean to say is uh, we followed the idea of you... Then the cave-in happened. We landed here, where we really have never been, and, and then we saw the actual you, and we said hi. The imposter Bob Dylan shrugged. Not bad, considering. Connie grunted angrily. Fine. Have it your way. You're still walking ahead. Come on. Connie pushed the grumbling non-musicians out in front before hanging back a few paces with Belinda and Yuna, who, despite their predicament, seemed impressed. Connie played the flashlight over the rough terrain ahead as the troops slowly picked their way forward along the snaking cavern path. After several minutes of quiet walking, punctuated occasionally by low curses following a stubbed toe on the unforgivingly unexpected rock placement, Connie's flashlight flicked over something on the wall. Hey, hold on! What's this? Getting closer, it was unmistakable elaborate narrative artwork rendered in primal silhouette. The pictures continued on down the passage and told a story as you followed them. At the start, humanoid figures worked in a village, then moving on, fell down a hole into the earth, and finally were eaten by a giant thorn smudge of a monster. The drawings writhed and wormed, almost coming alive under the flickering light of the flashlight. Connie bit her lip. Seems heavy. Belinda, what do you make of this? You took that archaeology course, right? Close! I took an archaeologist! Belinda stepped closer, talking to Connie without removing her studious gaze from the artwork. It seems like some sort of prehistoric warning. From the look of it, I'd say it's telling us to watch out for Hep C. Connie raised an eyebrow. Yeah? Yeah, either that or some other evil thing. Either way, I'm pretty sure we don't have to worry about it. Connie didn't look comforted, but
but since there wasn't much else to do, she nodded and started walking again. After a few more minutes of walking, Yuna suddenly grabbed Connie's shoulder. Wait. There's more. What is it, Yuna? Did you see something about the cave drawings? Yuna pulled the other two women closer, eyes darting around and lowering her voice so the men couldn't hear. You're probably going to think I'm crazy, and I can't quite put my finger on it. But I feel like something's off about Bob, and what's his face? Well, that wasn't what I was expecting. But you mean more off than being dirtbag promise breathers and not even acknowledging our missing friends? Connie sniffed. Yes, all those things are bad and true. But I'm sensing something beyond that. Belinda scrunched her brow. I think I know what you mean, Yuna. Something's not quite right. I don't know if it's some new vocal tick they're affecting, or a, a new fashion designer they hired, or... I don't know, something! She said, squinting as if to peer through her own uncertainty. Now Connie was squinting, too. Yeah, that could be. But we've only been separated a few hours, and all that seems like... a lots of pull-off in the time frame, even for them. Come to think of it, when I need Dylan's crotch, I don't think I felt a circumcised one. <gasps> I'm pretty good at detecting that kind of thing, even with my knee. Obviously, we all know Mr. Robert Zimmerman attended his bris. The others nodded knowledgeably. What are you saying here? hissed Belinda. That Bob and the other guy aren't who they say they are? That case is getting stronger and stronger. Intoned, Yuna. It's hard to tell in the light, but... Don't their beards look fake? Connie shrugged. Dylan's beard always looked fake. Belinda grimaced. True. What about the other guy? Connie shrugged again. There's no way to know. No one knows who he is, right? Not as you slept with him. The other two shook their heads. Belinda sucked her teeth. No, I don't think so. Connie thought for a moment. Well, there's only one way to be sure. We'll have to test them. Ask them a question that only they would know? No. Scoffed Connie. We don't want to talk to these jags, whether they're the real guys or not. Besides, that would take too long. We all know Bob's body. I say we rush him. I'll hold his arms. Yuna, you pull his beard, see if it's fake. And Belinda, you pants him. That should get to the bottom of this. Yuna and Belinda nodded solemnly. They were all in. Okay, good. On the count of three. But before she could continue, the world was flooded with bright, blinding light. The sudden transition forcing everyone to stop and shield their eyes. Then... A high-pitched, droning screech pierced their ears. The gibbering of seemingly hundreds of twisted denizens of the depths. And then they were struck. At first, one by one. Then, all at once, a torrent, an onslaught. Something, some things, collided with the group, striking them all over their bodies. The things were pointed and light and traveling at incredible speed. The group cried out in unison, making a gang vocal of unappreciation. As soon as it started, the noise and hit stopped, accompanied by a gentle whirring sound. A 
thick nasal voice echoed through the chamber. Bob, is that you? The light was as bright as ever, but as they were able to uncover their eyes, their sight slowly adjusted. The light came from several large floodlights mounted on sturdy metal tripods. Black metal flaps on hinges mounted around each light, angling the beam more precisely on the party. All around them were heaps of paper airplanes, folded on heavy paper, all of which seemed to have already been typewritten on. A 35-millimeter film camera was pointed at them, resting atop another, smaller tripod, its twin reels turning inside their case, creating the whirring sound. And then that stopped, too. Out from behind the camera stepped the unmistakable figure of legendary director Martin Scorsese. Dark black receding hair still long around the nape of the neck and full beard now shot with flecks of gray. In the dramatic lighting, Martin's shadow was significantly taller than he was. He broke into a wide smile. Bob, it is you! You know, at first I wasn't sure because I seem to have misplaced my glasses, which makes them a lot harder to find. Oh, wow! And Jeff Lynn from the Electric Light Orchestra. Fantastic! I'm so glad I noticed because otherwise I would have let my booby traps near tear you all apart. I can never be too careful. You are Jeff Lynn and Bob Dylan, right? Martin squinted. The imposter Jeff Lynn looked at the imposter Bob Dylan, who looked to Connie, Una, and Belinda, who looked at each other, all simultaneously coming to the same conclusion. Yes! They all said together, without hesitation. Oh, thank God, said Martin. I'd hate to go through some mistaken identity fiasco. But, Bob, what's with the cowboy getup? You're not going through another Christian phase, are you? Bob shook his head, not wanting to show off his not-very-Dylan, Bob Dylan voice. Scorsese seemed like he paid attention to details, and it was his eyes that were impaired, not his ears. Ah, thank God, thank God. Ever since the last temptation of Christ opened, every Christian with a radio has been driving around trying to crucify me. The last thing I need is for one of my idols to start throwing the Bible around. Where my manners? It seems you've brought some lovely lady friends with you as well. And it looks like there's uh, one extra for me. Ha-ha! <laughs> no, I'm only, I'm only kidding around. Uh, I'm married. Although she's wife number five, so clearly that's negotiable. Any takers? No? Okay. Belinda shuffled her feet through the paper airplanes, pulling one from her hair. What is all this? She asked. I'm glad you asked, he answered. This is one of my booby traps. Helps to warn me of invading Christians. At least that's one of its functions. I couldn't help myself. While building it, I decided to have it serve a double duty to get some test footage recreating the famous scene from Hitchcock's The Birds. Only I didn't have any birds. So I ended up using paperwork from my four previous divorce proceedings folded into paper airplanes. I thought it would add a dark, comedic touch. But it's not working. I can see it's not working. Which is a lot like my marriages. Ha! It's actually very sad. Connie rubbed her shoulders, looking around for potential hazards. Where are we? My basement. One of them. I have several across the country. Connecticut, Pittsburgh, Long Island, Manhattan, everywhere. This one's very special, though. New York's changed. Not as much as it might be in the future, but still, a lot. So the only way I can immerse myself in the amount of darkness and violence I need to make my films is living in a haunted cave in New Jersey. This place is haunted? Squeaked the imposter Jeff Lynn, forgetting Martin Scorsese might know the real Jeff Lynn well enough to recognize his voice. He didn't. Martin nodded. 
double haunted, if you want to put it that way. Some forgotten ancient people told of an unknowable primal force buried deep beneath the earth here. Deeper than here, even. So that's scary. Belinda nodded. Yeah, we saw the hepatitis drawings on our way in. Martin bobbed his head enthusiastically. Yuna jumped in. The second haunting must be the sunken fairground. Martin cocked an enormous eyebrow. Oh yeah, I completely forgot about that one. With the land developer and the vengeful dunk tank clown spirit. No, it's tacky. It feels cheap. You can call it whatever you want, but you can't call it a haunting. You know, that's not haunting. The girls glanced at each other, confused, noticing that the two impostors were nodding along in agreement a little too enthusiastically. What's the other haunting, then? Martin perked up. Oh, this is great. You're going to love this. I built my basement here out of the gutted remains of Studio 54. You know, the legendary nightclub renowned for its celebrity debauchery. <laughs> you know, look. The floodlights switched off, and next to them, multicolored light bathed the first floor of the famous nightclub, cobbled together within an inch of its life. The sheen of grandeur and opulence that must have once permeated this place was now crusted over with neglect. Not just in the actual structure, although that was also true. The bar's bottles were all broken, glued back together to various degrees of success. The turntable was cracked in half, and the dance floor looked like it had been broken up by a jackhammer, then vainly pieced back together with cement, yielding a rough, undanceable surface. Despite all that, what most gave the place its ghostly quality was its emptiness. Where once the rich and famous desperately clamored to be let in, now there was no one, in or out, to keep that mystique alive. Studio 54 was gone, the reassembled pieces merely a reminder of that hard truth. Martin Scorsese cackled with glee. <laughs> Isn't it incredible? I was never allowed in when it was open, but now it's all mine. He trotted onto the dance floor, tripping on the uneven surface, catching himself just before he fell. What wonderful, wonderful place. Haunted, obviously. It has that duality. Connie and Belinda could barely hide their grimaces, but Una stepped into the desiccated nightclub, a studious look on her face. Yes, it is haunted. I can feel a presence. Did someone die here? Martin shrugged. Well, not that I'm aware of, but probably. Nobody famous, though. I'm sure of that. What you're feeling is the ghost of carefree 70s decadence. At least that's the sense I got whenever I communed here. Nuna snapped her head around to stare directly at Martin, her gaze boring into him. How did you commune? Martin looked scared. Well, I have a Ouija board. Take it out. We must commune. Connie rubbed her nose, exasperated. Yuna, I don't think we have time to do some magic spell or whatever. We will make time, said Yuna in a strong, authoritative voice, commanding attention. A presence here knows where Dixie is. Connie and Belinda's eyes got wide. The two impostors looked at each other uneasily. In short order, Martin Scorsese had lit an array of black candles and arranged them in a circle in the middle of the dance floor. Inside that, the group sat in another circle, the Ouija board in the center. Everyone? Put your hands on the planchette, instructed Yuna, and they all complied. This is so exciting. I haven't had this much adrenaline in my system since I quit doing coke, which has got to be, wow, almost a week ago. 
Silence! cried Yuna, her voice echoing. Everyone, close your eyes and focus on the shadow plane. Spirits of Studio 54. I am the one they call Yuna from Bridgeport. I beseech your guidance. Are you there, spirits? Can you hear me? Immediately, the planchette moved. Everyone gasped, except Yuna, who kept her eyes fixed in the middle distance, her gaze glassy. The planchette under everyone's hands moved swiftly and surely, clearly indicating each letter. First, it moved to Y. Then, E. And finally, to Z. There was a pause. Yes? Connie asked, confused. Yes is not a word, correct? Asked Martin. Does somebody have a dictionary? Yuna sighed impatiently. Clearly the spirits meant yes. Thank you, spirits. We seek our lost friend, the one we call Dixie, but which is not her real name. Is, is she alive? Again, the planchette moved immediately. Y, then E, then Q. Belinda scowled, but Una nodded, relieved. Ah, the spirits mean yes. This is wonderful news. Do you know where Dixie is, spirits? The planchette moved with unequivocal assurance, first to Y, then E, and finally, B. There was a brief silence before Belinda broke it. Okay, what the hell? Yeb? Shush! The spirits mean yes, said Una, raising her voice a bit. Belinda didn't look convinced. Yeah, but they spelled a three-letter word wrong three times, three different ways. Maybe the ghosts are illiterate, suggested Connie, sardonically, receiving a harsh look from Una. That would make sense, actually, said Martin. Illiteracy is one of the common side effects to a lot of the popular drugs at the time. Yuna pinched their hands. Stop it! All of you! You're offending the spirits! I apologize for my inconsiderate friends. Oh, spirits, they know not what they do. Please, beings of infinite generosity, spell out the name of the place where Dixie is. This time... The planchette did not move. Long moments passed. Finally, Belinda again broke the silence. Maybe the spirits are busy? Quiet, barked Una. Again, please accept my deepest apologies for my small-minded compatriot's behavior. Forgiving spirits, if you can find it in your hearts... Please grant us this boon. Tell us where Dixie is. At first, nothing happened. Then, slowly but surely, the planchette moved. First, it landed on S. Then, E. Then, circled around the end of the alphabet several times, 
before landing on why. It paused for so long there that Belinda was about to insult the ghosts again, but then it moved to you, and finally, P, and didn't move again. Say up, said Una in a holy monotone. Say up, asked Martin. That can't be a place. It was clear from Connie and Belinda's expressions that they felt this had all been a catastrophic waste of time. You're all too impatient. The spirits must not be finished with the word, said Una, although she sounded too defensive to be really sure. Oh, come on, challenged Belinda. What place starts with Sayup? I don't know. Sayupville? Una threw back. Listen to yourself, shouted Belinda, out of patience. Guys, Connie interjected, trying to head off a fight. This didn't work, but there's no need to get... No! Maybe it's another misspelling. Maybe it's a command, and they're telling us to say up. Up! 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 She cried at the cave ceiling, holding up her arms, looking like a child waiting to be picked up. Other than creating an embarrassing image, nothing happened. Yuna slumped, and Connie gently rubbed her shoulders. It's okay, Yuna. I know you just want to find Dixie. We all do, I promise. We'll find her. Together. Yuna snapped up. I know what we're doing wrong, she said, a picture of conviction. Yeah, this whole thing, replied Connie, not unkindly. No. Martin, something you said earlier is the key. We can't communicate with the spirits because we're not on the same level. The spirits are high, and and we're not. We need to take drugs. Connie held her head. Una, this is no time to... Belinda cut her off. Well, hold on now. Let's uh, hear what she has to say. Martin chimed in. Look, I'm a sober guy now, but in honor of Studio 54, I keep a vial of highway to space which is a mix of pure Colombian cocaine and acid straight from Leary's lab. I'll give it all to you if you let me film it. I'm working on a sequel to The Last Waltz. Working title? The Final Last Waltz. The groupie's jaws hung open, and the imposter Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynn looked so eager they could have been the real guys. After a moment, Connie smiled. Well, Dixie would have been first in line for this. She was the queen of multitasking, so I think if we channel her, we can still find her and get stoned. The whole group cheered. A short time later, after that first blissful bump, Una saw, and I mean really saw, exactly where Dixie was. Down, 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 beneath the rock. The traveling Wilburys gaped at the mass of robed cultists gathered around the stone altar. While they couldn't have known it for sure, but should have realized it but didn't, that was Dixie strapped to the altar. The cultists' chanting rose to a frenzy until Dixie snorted violently, hushing the crowd, and Dixie popped her head up, straining against the restraints and squinting like she just woke up. Seeming to see the crowd for the first time, she said in a loud, clear voice, Yeah, and that's where I run out of ideas. This, I mean, it's a, it's a climactic scene. You know, we're, they're finding Dixie. Uh, she's in trouble. There's a, 
lot going on here with the with the cultists and and you know whatever drug trip the other groupies are on i mean the only problem <laughs> is i have no idea what dixie says in this moment i mean and this is going to set the tone for the for the following scene this is the whole tone of the chat i mean if i don't have this line i don't i don't have anything and i, I so I'm back on my knees, asking you, the audience, to help me out and supply me with some ideas here. So if you want to get involved, go on Twitter, UTMWIG, Y-O-U-T-M-W-I-G, on Twitter, and message me what Dixie says. Give me a line. Give me it can be anything. A real I'm I'm desperate. I there's no wrong ideas. And I'm gonna put them all in a poll, and then you'll all vote on those. The the ideas that your compatriots have supplied. And just to be clear, you don't have to have submitted an idea to vote. I hope that you submit, but everyone go vote. And and that's gonna be up. I'm gonna put. Uh, I'm gonna be accepting, accepting those immediately. That poll will be up as soon as, soon as I can. So, keep an eye out. Whew. Intense. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening, and for contributing. Stay badass. You've been listening to Tell Me Where I'm Going, a Let's Hear It production. To learn more, visit letshearit.network.